Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, we praise you because you speak to us. You are the light in our darkness. We ask that by your Spirit, through your word this morning, you'd speak to our hearts, our lives, our minds, our will. Please give us the desire to come to Christ in faith for forgiveness. Give us the desire to live his way, your way. Lord, I pray that all that we pray that all I say would be true, helpful, and uh, upbuilding for each of us this morning and for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, is there anyone that you know that you'd call a goody-goody? By that, I don't just mean someone who strives to do what's right, but someone who others might call self-righteous. The person who wants to be seen to be doing right. The person who takes pride in, say, their church attendance or their being nice and their avoiding bad sins. The goody-goody often places their confidence in their deeds and they tend to look down on others as inferior. And most of us have met people like that. Maybe we're one of them. You see, when we focus on the law, often we'll end up either being depressed by our guilt or we'll be proud in our righteousness. And most of us can face the temptation to head in one of these two directions, guilt or pride. And so what is it that God asks of us? What does it look like to live a life that pleases God without pride? And what does true righteousness look like? Our passage today helps us answer those questions. We're going to consider this passage under uh, this passage and the idea of true righteousness under these four headings for ours, relationship to the Old Testament, revealed from the heart, repenting of anger and reconciling with others there in your outline. And so beginning with relationship to the Old Testament. As we've heard already this morning, Jesus has just called his disciples to be salty and bright Christians whose good deeds direct others to God and glorify God. But the question is, what good deeds does God want me to do? And what in the Old Testament should I be obeying? The relationship between Christ's teaching and the Old Testament is a big one. Does the teaching of Jesus simplify the law of Moses? Does he reinterpret it? Or does he dismiss it? And Jesus says in verse 17, doesn't he, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Law and prophets was a way of speaking about the Old Testament as a whole, particularly God's commands, though. And Jesus is saying, I've not come to abolish God's Old Testament commands. I've not come to nullify or destroy or detract from them, but to fulfill them. The question is, what does that mean? What does fulfill mean here? Well, much ink has been spilt on this, and scholars have many views, and several are uh, Bible-based and faithful to Scripture. And what I hope you'll see is that I don't think we need to hone in on just one way that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament because it is multifaceted, especially when we uh, consider and look at the wider teaching of the New Testament. 
I see scripture suggesting four ways that Christ fulfills the law and the prophets. First and foremost, Jesus fulfills them in that they point to him. He is their fulfillment. And the entire Old Testament, all of it points forward to Jesus. You'll have multiple sermons just on this. But he himself says this in Luke 24, verse 44. Jesus brings all that the Old Testament has pointed to, to completion and fruition. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ, their fulfillment in him. And he fulfills so many Old Testament prophecies. Just like in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15, Jesus, we're told, fulfilled a prophecy in Hosea about the Christ coming up from Egypt. Jesus, secondly, also kept all the law's demands and commands. You see, Christ's righteousness is radical, not because it's new, but because he lived it. He lived it when no one else had. And in this sense, fulfill means to do or to carry out. And this keeping the law, this understanding of keeping the law, it fits with the use of the term elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says in verse 18, Not the smallest part of the law will be removed, for it must all be accomplished. And Jesus is the one who accomplishes and keeps it. Christ accomplished the law. He fulfilled it completely. 100% of the time he obeyed it in his life. He sinned not in the smallest way. Hebrews chapter 4 says that he did not sin. He was sinless. I wonder if you've heard the expression, that won't make an iota of difference. Well, smallest letter that we read here is literally iota in Greek. It's our letter I. Iota is the letter I in Greek, and it's the smallest Greek letter. And Jesus obeyed the Old Testament law, even the smallest parts, fully for us. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived. And then he died the death that we should have died. The third area of fulfillment is Jesus fulfills the law by dying on the cross for us. By dying as our sacrifice, Jesus was fulfilling the demands of the law for those who would believe in him. You see, the law stands against us, and every time you and I sin, the law cries out, guilty, guilty, guilty. And the wages of sin is death. The law demanded death as a consequence for sin, and Jesus took that for us. He kept the law perfectly and he suffered its punishment. And yet by dying, Colossians chapter 2 says, by dying he cancelled our legal record of debt that stood against us. So Christ fulfilled the law for us. We cannot obtain righteousness by obeying the law, but only by trusting in Christ who lived for us and who died for us. And so the, the coming of Christ brings a radical change in salvation history. 
When Christ comes, a fundamental shift occurs, a, a sea change. Christ brings something new. And this leads us to the fourth area, which is that Christ fulfill, he fills out, he fills out the true meaning of the Old Testament laws. The word fulfill is literally the word fulfill up, like you fill up a glass with water to the top. And Jesus came to fill up and give fuller expression to the law's intention. And in Jesus' sermon here, this fourth meaning, this meaning is the most significant explanation of fulfill. Jesus is correcting misinterpretations and he's amplifying the deeper meaning of the old covenant teachings. And he gives the, the fuller implications of certain Old Testament commands. And so in this sense, he is taking the law a step further. He brings a new focus on love and he brings a new focus on the hearts, which we will see this morning and in the coming weeks. You see, love now is lifted to a higher level than it was in the Old Testament. Love is lifted to a higher level. And so we say that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law in himself, in his sinless life, in his death, and in his teaching. So it's fulfilled in a multifaceted and dynamic way. So what about the, the Christian and the law? What about us and the law? Jesus says in verse 19, the law is to be obeyed and all its commands are important. Again, this is a complex thing. Because in places like Mark chapter 7, we learn that because of Jesus, since Jesus, the Jewish food laws are all finished in the sense that all foods are now clean and consumable. I, as a Christian, can eat pork and shellfish with a clean conscience. The ceremonial law, the food laws, the sacrificial system, it's all fulfilled by Christ in the sense that it no longer needs to be obeyed by Christians today. And yet, as the Sermon on the Mount goes on to make very clear, God's moral law, which reflects his unchangeable character, that is to be obeyed. Christians are no longer under the penalty of the law. But the principles, the moral principles of the Old Testament continue to guide us in living righteously. God's moral law, which reflects who God is, remains the guide for living a righteous, God-honoring life. And God still calls us, his new covenant people, to live holy lives, doesn't he? And the Old Testament helps us to know how to do that when we read it in the light of Jesus. And so verse 19 says, we are to teach and obey and practice his commands. The trouble is that our sinful hearts, we often resent the restrictions and the demands that are put on us. I mean, we see a, a don't walk on the grass sign and we automatically want to walk on the grass. 
too often believers, we find reasons to make God's commands less demanding than they are. And Jesus says that is not okay. In fact, he does the opposite. He helps us see it's actually harder to obey than people like the Pharisees thought. Verse 20, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. We often fail to recognise and see the shock that this would have caused those first, those first hearers who heard Jesus preaching. I mean, everyone knew, everyone knew that the Pharisees were the holiest men in town. And if Jesus says that, well, your righteousness has got to be greater than this, the people and the disciples were surely thinking, well, if they can't get to heaven, what to hope to I have? What hope do we have? I used to think that the righteousness spoken of here was that which is counted ours by faith in Jesus. And yet the word righteousness in Matthew's gospel nearly always refers to proper conduct before God. And in the context of the verses either side of this, it's clear that righteousness here is talking about obedience and doing the right thing. So how do you react to verse 20? Some shrug it off as an impossible ideal. You can't be serious, Jesus. What you're asking is unattainable and impossible. Some sink under its weight, aware of how far short they fall, how far short their lives are. And you know what? The teaching of Jesus is impossible for us to obey. It is impossible for us to obey, for the Mother Teresas of our world, for your pastors and for you. But it's not a moral code to be done in our own strength. And Paul's argument in Romans makes clear that the law cannot save. We read that earlier, didn't we, in Romans chapter 8. For what the law was powerless to do, save us, that is, in that it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he became a human being to be a sin offering. He fulfilled the law for us and died for us. And now Paul goes on to say we can, we can now live it by the Spirit. Verse 5, those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. And so by the Holy Spirit, we can display true righteousness by God's word and by the power of the Spirit. Strength is not in us, though, or not from us. So before we move on, please understand these teachings of Jesus are grounded in the saving action of God in the gospel in Jesus. And they express our new relationship with God. So we obey them because we already have relationship with God. We're already followers of Jesus. Jesus is not teaching here salvation by works or works righteousness. It's about the ethics of the kingdom. Those of us who are right with God by faith, righteous by faith, 
will display a righteousness of life that surpasses the Pharisees. How is that? Because it is revealed, next point, revealed from the heart. Do you remember the story of young David being chosen as king over his older brothers? Do you remember God saying that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart? In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for their outward conformity that lacked real righteousness from the heart. In Matthew 23, from verse 27, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Righteousness of life must come from the heart, a heart that has been changed by God's grace. Righteous living is not about dead rituals, but right motives and loving relationships. And what follows now in Matthew's Gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, is six examples of righteousness lived. Six examples of the Old Testament law applied to the heart and lived out in love. And today we're going to consider the first of those, that of anger. So next point, repenting of anger. Jesus declares, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus here refers to the sixth of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. A murder refers to killing that is not sanctioned by the community or the governing rulers and is not accidental. And in saying, but I say, Jesus is not rejecting the Old Testament teaching and asserting his own. It appears like he corrects the Old Testament, but in the context of what he's just said in verses 17 to 20, he is not, clearly. Still, let's remember who he's speaking here. This is God himself speaking, the word of God in the flesh speaking to God's people. And Jesus is challenging the rabbi's reading of the Old Testament and he's showing that the extent that the law applies to us goes far beyond just the outward acts of murder, for example. So Christ is taking the commandment a step further. He doesn't dismiss the sixth commandment, he actually intensifies and internalizes the sixth commandment. He intensifies it and internalizes it. Jesus says, you do not murder people, well done. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister still deserves judgment. Murder, you see, gets deepened to anger. I mean, doesn't, after all, murder start with angry thoughts in the heart? 
Now, there can be a righteous anger against sin. We see in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus himself got angry when he cleared the temple and Jesus called the Pharisees blind fools. But he wasn't angry because his personal ego was hurt. He cared about the glory of God and the good of others. And so, yes, there is a just anger. And if that's what we are feeling, then we should remember and obey Ephesians 4 verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. But too often, we justify our anger as righteous anger. And we feel that we have a right to be angry. You see, most of the time we need to repent of our anger, especially when we're angry that our own rights have been infringed. And in Christian homes and in churches, anger is often directed to those we love most. A spouse or our children, our siblings or our parents, our brothers and sisters in Christ in our church family. And sometimes I can get angry when my kids don't do what I ask, when someone drives too slow in front, or when my own plans don't work out. A man called Michael writes, I was angry. And justifiably so, my six-year-old child had, after a long afternoon of belligerence and defiance, come close to me faking a cuddle and then head-butted me on the bridge of the nose. My reaction was instantaneous and born from anger. I slapped him, not especially hard, but enough to upset him and his mother who'd witnessed the whole thing. What had I done? I was shocked by my own rage and the violence it had spawned. And I was instantaneously filled with regrets and doubts. It didn't take him long to recover, as it turned out, and within minutes he was laughing and playing happily. But still, I had lifted my hand in anger against my own child violently. Rather than absorbing and restraining his lashing out against me or disciplining him in a measured way, I had repaid him in kind. Would he always remember this moment with bitterness in his heart? I was appalled at myself. How does your anger show? Maybe it's not in open, raging words and actions. Jerry Bridges, in his excellent book, Respectable Sins, says, for others, anger is held onto as resentment. And like a weed, it grows into bitterness and feelings of animosity. 1 John 3 verse 15 says, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in them. This is convicting. Many times I grew up, when I grew up, I hated my own brothers. 
Jesus then elaborates and highlights the names that we call others in verse 22. The root of the word raka means empty, so it's insulting someone, it's calling them an empty head, a a good-for-nothing, a stupid idiot, etc. And which of us has never done that? The intent, I think, is found in the, the sound that the word is when you, when you speak it. It's you rucker, worthless person. Are you fool? That simply means you moron. And whenever we say such things, we, we look down on the person, we despise them, we think we're better than them. And when we get angry, it can show in the, the names we use of people, can show in the, the way we describe people in our attitudes. Maybe for you it's shown in belittling comments or sarcasm. And in all these things we sin. And please hear what Jesus says. Jesus says that our unrighteous anger and pride, it makes us deserving of hell. Guilty enough to go to hell. And so what must we conclude from all this? Anger is a universal problem. No one is isolated from its presence or immune from its poison. It permeates each person and even our most intimate relationships. In 1931, one of the most notorious US criminals was captured Tugun Crowley had brutally murdered many people. It's said that when he was finally captured in his girlfriend's apartment after a gun battle, the police found a blood-spattered note in his pocket and it read, Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would do nobody any harm. Even the worst of men tried to exonerate themselves. And Crowley's attitude is what many people think about themselves. I may have done some bad things, but I'm not really that bad. I'm still a good person deep down. And too many Christians likewise live in denial about their anger. Anger is even the hidden roots of some people's depression. And so admit that you get angry even sometimes. But maybe you're just an angry person. Let us admit that we can be quick to be angry when we are personally affronted or offended or wronged. And all too often we are slow to be angry when sin or injustice is multiplied in other areas. May we confess it and repent of it, hate it, and turn from it. I hope that we will all hear the call this morning from God to turn away from our anger and to Christ. Turn to Christ in dependent faith for forgiveness, real forgiveness, life-changing forgiveness, and a fresh start.
You see, when you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you are united to him by the Holy Spirit. And that means, Christian, in Christ and in the strength of the Spirit, you can change. You can live differently. And for Christians, this change, this new way of life will mean instead of allowing anger to divide relationships, we do what we can to reconcile relationships. Our final brief point is reconciling with others. Jesus gives two examples to show that his people should correct injustice and do what we can to reconcile with others. So we must take positive steps to remove our anger, and even to help remove the anger of others. For the first century Jew, they might have been bringing an animal offering or a grain offering to the temple, and Jesus says, if you're doing that, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So for us, for you this week, If you remember someone has something against you, someone that you've hurt or angered intentionally or unintentionally, go to them, speak to them and seek to reconcile with them. If someone's holding a grudge against you, move towards them, speak with them. Repent and apologise where you're responsible and try to reconcile. Sadly, sometimes I know it won't be successful. And sadly, despite our best efforts, others don't change their attitude. Secondly, with the the next example of reconciliation in verse 25, the point is settle matters quickly. Make friends quickly with the one who's taking you to court. Judgment is looming. Justice will be done, so reconcile before you can, while you can, before prison or punishment comes. And so next time that you're angry with someone, or in this case, next time someone gets angry at you, whether you're guilty or innocent, maybe you could be the first to move towards them in peace, seeking peace. Because we're peacemakers, remember? And in doing that, as we do what we can, by God's grace, to bring reconciliation with others, in doing that, we can be the salty and bright Christians that bring glory to our God. With these two stories of reconciliation, Jesus is showing that the true intention of the commandment was not negative, but it was a commitment to love to love our neighbour, commitment to love which is seen in reconciliation and in friendship. And so what we've seen is that Jesus fills up and he fills out the sixth commandment. So as I close, maybe we need to realise that we might not have murdered, but in our selfishness we have gotten angry and we need God's forgiveness as much as the murderer. 
The biblical counsellor and writer Ed Welch says, An angry person is always the last person to know they are angry. We will acknowledge that we are depressed, we're fearful or in pain, but we are blind to our anger. We think about what our needs are, and by needs we mean rights and demands, and we consider how our needs have been unmet, how my rights have been violated, and what I think I deserve and what I don't have, and we get angry. Please be humble enough to go home today and ask someone close to you, do you think I'm an angry person? And to angry people, God says, confess your anger. Trust me for forgiveness. And now live differently. Obey. And by Christ's strength in us, we can then show righteousness and love from the inside out. Jesus obeyed and fulfilled the law perfectly in our place. He took the law's penalty for us. Now through him we can live rightly and even leave our sinful anger behind. Let's pray together that we will. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, when we think about your word, your commands, we do realise how far short we fall. So please help us to not have self-deceived hearts that take pride or boast in our achievements or our goodness. Help us to remember that none of us is good, not even one. Lord, as we get convicted of our sin, May we flee again to Christ in faith, casting ourselves on him in trust for forgiveness and cleansing and a fresh start. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you obeyed the law perfectly for us. Thank you that you died our death and you took the punishment that the law demanded. Lord, we thank you that as your people with your spirit, that we now have your strength to live a life that pleases you and which truly seeks the good of others before our own. So empower us to live this out by your spirit. And we ask this, Father, in our Saviour Jesus' name. Amen.